and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back, guys, and welcome back to the UK, Mark. I know, yeah, I'm uh, fresh. I'm fresh from America, but I'm here. I've turned up, so uh, yeah. So, before we get started on the episode, would you like to say a massive thanks to our new patron supporters? I certainly would. Uh, so, we have Amy Gale, Maggie Genjabaf, Kelly Cooper, Larissa Yates, Andrew Westgarth, Tracy Beard, Danny Jones and Fabie Johns. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for signing up to support us on Patreon. If you want to join these guys, then head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thank you so much, everybody. So, this week, my theme of the episode is sleep, but more specifically, parasomnias, so involuntary actions whilst asleep. I um, I only looked, I've not read the script, obviously, you sent it through and I saw the title of today's uh, episode of the script, and you'd put sleepwalking, and I immediately thought, I hope this is, because we've never covered this, and I hope this is whatever it, you just call it, parasomnia, um, because there's been some cases over the years, over recent years, in the media about this, and I find it a fascinating subject. Yeah, me too, and it's a topic that's been suggested and prompted by a listener, and I'm so glad that she did prompt it, because actually... I've really enjoyed looking into this and learning a little bit more. So I grew up in a household with two little sisters who talked in their sleep and my other little sister was a major sleepwalker. Like I'm talking you had to make sure all the doors and windows were locked because she'd go outside and then that was quite crazy like my childhood with them three whereas I don't really have any weird sleep habits unless you count being able to fall asleep anywhere weird. I can kind of just literally if I'm tired I will fall asleep but I am a reasonably light sleeper I have issues with staying asleep all night but if I'm tired I'm going to sleep wherever it is I've never really been a sleepwalker or sleep talker so my first question to you Mark is do you have any weird sleep habits um I don't well I like to have an afternoon nap I wouldn't say that's weird uh so I'll quite often have an afternoon nap at the weekend for a couple of hours or three hours um which is really lazy I know I'm really lucky to be able to do that um as a kid though I suffered really really bad night terrors and um that's horrible they are yeah they're not like a nightmare you it's almost like a sort of um I would probably describe it a bit like a psychotic episode in that you really are imagining in things and and seeing them as if it were absolutely real so um yeah just just really horrible uh nightmares that were kind of like felt very lived and then I last had one I remember having one um when I'd just come back from America this was years ago 15 years ago and um I I was probably a bit jet lagged and I was staying in a hotel in London because I'd flown back and I must have been jet lagged and I remember waking up in the hotel in front of the mirror in the bathroom saying what's your name which is what my mom used to say to me when I was like five to bring me out of a night terror she'd say what's your name where do you live and I I woke up stood in that mirror and the dream was that because I'd been on a plane I suppose I dreamt that I was on this plane and it was about to crash and nobody was listening to me and it was like that just real panic fear Um, it was absolutely horrible and yeah I woke up stood in front of the bathroom mirror um probably more shocked at that because it was just really weird saying out loud what's your name that's so weird oh I don't like that I've not had one since so um hopefully oh, I've I grown hope out you of never them. do yeah it's honestly it's um if anybody if any of our listeners have them they'll 
they'll know how um, how terrible they are. But but yeah, I think I was probably very early twenties, and so I might might have you know it might have been a bit of a hangover of me having them in childhood, and I would say I've completely grown out of them now. I would hope. So I have a friend who is a really noisy sleeper, and anytime I share a bed with her, she wakes me up making noises that I can only describe as sexual noises in her sleep isn't that hilarious so embarrassing i won't get you to describe them uh by miming them no i won't be miming them but yeah i use my imagination yeah that's not good is it (laughs) poor her god what what if she falls asleep on a plane or something i know people think she's having embarrassing dreams but she's not she just makes weird noises so yeah there we go so like that example and some of this does sound quite light-hearted and and it it is a lot of the time it's a bit of a funny talking point the next morning um generally apart from things like night terrors like you explained mark about yours it's not usually scary or worrying and sleepwalkers other people who have parasomnias or involuntary behaviors that they act out while sleeping are usually quite harmless you know you walked and and spoke to yourself but it was actually to bring yourself out of the the horrible dreams so usually it's it's usually harmless But what about when someone's sleep actions evoke fear? How do you deal with a partner who lashes out in their sleep or whose sleepwalking becomes a danger? And it's so, I I know that you'll come on to this, but it's so difficult because the person that's done anything wrong when they've been asleep, so maybe they've hit a partner, um, they could have put their fist through a window or something, they, they probably won't have any recollection of it. And they, it's hard for them to sort of feel bad about it, I guess, because as far as they're concerned, they kind of didn't do it or they didn't do it, um, you know, like intentionally. No, exactly. It's not like they chose to do that thing and they don't even have a memory of it. So it's, no. you can't have the guilt of doing something. So this is where the sleepwalking defence comes in, this legal argument that a criminal defendant isn't culpable because he or she acted whilst in a sleep-like state without consciousness or any intent to commit the crime. Sleepwalking as a legal defence is unusual. There are not many cases of it and for the most part it is not only horrific for the person who's hurt but also for the person who committed the crime whilst asleep. Others, of course, have tried to use this unusual defence to their advantage, knowing it's kind of almost impossible to prove or disprove. Without the possibility of retrospectively determining whether someone was asleep during a crime, it's kind of up to the jury, basically, to decide, is the defendant telling the truth? Does the story that they've given make sense to you as a jury? So it's one thing to make a decision about reasonable doubt if you've got a number of facts you can clarify or quantify in front of you, but this must be really hard to decide on as a jury. Yeah, I, I can't imagine being on a jury that's that's deliberating over a case like this. I think it's almost—it's like you say—it's almost impossible, isn't it, to objectively determine whether it, there was intent or not. So this week's episode is going to feature three cases with sleepwalking at their centre. But unlike with my friend, with her creepy noises, this isn't going to be amusing. And there's really nothing lighthearted about this episode. So after the comeback to season seven, where we went a bit lighthearted this isn't going to be it. So before we begin, officially, what is sleepwalking? So sleepwalking is a disorder that involves walking or performing other complex behaviours whilst asleep. Sleepwalking is more prevalent in children and usually occurs in people who are sleep deprived. Sleepwalking symptoms can vary from simply sitting up in bed to walking around the house or leaving the home and travelling long distances. So according to the National Sleep Foundation, the symptoms of sleepwalking are Sleep talking, little or no memory of the event, a difficulty arousing the sleepwalker during an episode, 
Inappropriate behaviour, such as urinating in closets, which is more common in children, and this did make me laugh because one of my sisters once, they had a toy box in their room and they thought it was, because it had a lid, they thought it was the toilet, and one of my sisters did wee in a toy box on the other sister's toys. Oh, that's horrendous. Yeah. It was not, it was not funny, f- really, but actually I laughed a lot because well, it wasn't my not, toys. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not your toys and you're not the one now yeah. being embarrassed on a podcast about it, so. I know, luckily none of my sisters listen and there's a lot of them, so nobody would know. Um, also screaming, so if sleepwalking occurs in conjunction with sleep terrors and also violent attacks on the person trying to wake the sleepwalker. Um, I guess that kind of goes back to the other one, which was difficulty arousing the sleepwalker. So those are some of the things that officially define sleepwalking because they that's probably why they say not to um well not to wake up somebody who is sleepwalking but to kind of guide them back to bed uh, because i guess if you do wake them from it they could lash out and there could be a violent attack off the back of it yeah because they're going to be really shocked and not yeah. know where they are so yeah definitely makes sense so yeah as i said this episode is has been prompted by one of our listeners so we'll just say hi to her i can't remember whether or not she wanted her name on the show as part of this episode so i'm not going to say it just in case but she knows who she is so there we go so we'll begin with a historical account it is one of the earliest cases in which a defense of sleepwalking was offered at trial and it's perhaps one of the most famous examples of sleepwalking as a defense so it's the case of albert tyrrell and it took place in 1845 in boston So in a scandal that shook Boston society, Albert Tyrrell was having an affair with a young sex worker called Maria Bickford. It really wasn't much of a secret and the pair had been repeatedly caught by his wife's family. So instead of continuing to live with his wife and their two children, Albert actually ended up leaving the family home to be with Maria. Um, However, although they were constantly together and they travelled together using different names that they'd kind of, you know, checking at hotels with aliases aliases that's the word she never abandoned her profession and this was not something that albert was very happy about so he wanted to be with her but she didn't want to give up her job um who knows what was said between the pair and closed behind closed doors but apparently he just wasn't happy that she was still a sex worker Mm. but he'd left you know he left the family home to travel around with her however because he'd left the family home, he was actually under the charge of adultery, but he just refused to give up this affair. So he must have really quite loved her at, at some point. So it was illegal back then to have an affair? Yeah, you could be done for adultery. God. So on October the 27th, 1845, the landlord of the building, which housed the brothel where Maria worked, was awoken by screams and he rushed and sort of discovered this horrific scene. The mutilated, murdered body of Maria... And then he called the police. And so Maria lay on her back in her nightgown and her throat had been slit from ear to ear so brutally that she appeared nearly decapitated. Her neck wound measured six inches long and three inches deep. The room was clogged with smoke because someone had set fire to the bed. A bloodstained razor was found at the foot of the bed. Maria's hair was singed and her skin was charred. And part of one of her ears was split open and was missing an earring. That really reminded me of um, Lynette White and how she was discovered. I don't, I, I really, I, I know the name, I just cannot remember With the that Cardiff, case. the Cardiff Miscarriage of Justice. I remember that, I just can't remember details yeah, it, of... It really reminded me of her and being found on the bed like that. And actually they also found some of Albert Tyrrell's clothes and his cane at the crime scene um, because, you know, they lived together along yeah. where, you know where they was going um 
and two other fires had been set nearby to sort of to destroy evidence. So Albert Tyrrell, who had been seen with her, had been seen looking a mess afterwards and who was apparently trying to flee the area was caught and he was tried for a series of crimes. So he was accused of the arson, the murder and also adultery, although that one he was already on the run for. So his parents hired a lawyer for him called Rufus Choate. So Rufus Choate was famous in Boston for the innovative defence strategies that he would use to acquit his clients and this trial was so sensational. He kind of had a name for himself as being sensational. He basically said, so although loads of witnesses could testify to Tyrrell having an affair with Maria Bickford, the presence of Tyrrell at the brothel that evening, there were no eyewitnesses to the actual crime. So he set forth two possible explanations for the jury to consider, and obviously all they had to do was find reasonable doubt of his guilt. So the first that he put forward was ridiculous. He tried to say that Maria had committed suicide. I mean, that was then disproved quite obviously, because it's impossible due to the injuries she received, but that was his first go at it. I can't believe that you could, well, I'm sure you can't do it now, but that you could put forward two possible ex- explanations or two defences, and they're going to be completely different, because uh, obviously the next one's going to be that, I guess, that Albert was responsible, but it was through sleepwalking, so there was no intent. But I just think you can't you can't say two possible explanation well maybe you can because I suppose Albert would say I don't know this is possible I'd have no recollection of it maybe yeah maybe I do understand it I think the thing is I suppose you have to show the jury that there's reasonable doubt so maybe if you give a couple of explanations as possibles you're proving that but I totally agree it's not like they've chosen two random explanations that don't involve Albert one of them does and you're correct yeah and the other's completely separate and nothing to do with him So absolutely, his next strategy was to say that Albert was sleepwalking and he'd murdered Maria under the influence of a nightmare or some sort of trance. And he said there was no reason for Albert to kill the woman he loved. So clearly he didn't mean to do it. He was surely not aware of his actions at the time. Um, Which I kind of get what they're trying to say there. You know, he's left his wife, he's on the run with her. What reason does he have to kill her? But people have killed for ridiculous reasons people have killed the people that they love that doesn't answer anything no not at all they, they could have had an argument that nobody was witness to she could have been having an affair that nobody knew about or it could just be the fact that she was continuing to work as a sex worker and that's quite understandable that her, her partner wouldn't be happy with that so um yeah that's like there's loads of, of reasons why he may have wanted to kill her that that um nobody else may have been aware of But it was the 1840s and nobody really knew what caused sleepwalking. Medical professionals differed in their beliefs about sleepwalking. So this worked a treat. Alongside the suggestion for what had happened, Choate reminded the jury that if they were to return a guilty verdict, Albert would almost certainly be executed. So if they had any doubt at all about his guilt, they should return a verdict of not guilty. And After less than two hours of deliberation on March the 30th, 1846, the jury returned its verdict of not guilty. The papers were full of sensational headlines that disagreed firmly with this, but Albert Tyrrell walked free. Mm, So what do we think? Guilty or not guilty? I think he was guilty. I don't think he was sleepwalking because I see the setting all these fires and trying to run away. Yeah, I mean, that kind of has him banged to rights anyway. But I think the fact that, you know, this is a dishonourable man certainly would have been viewed as dishonourable back then for having an affair because that was punishable by law, as I now know. Um, 
but yeah it's yeah it's it's quite clear that he he wasn't happy that she was continuing her line of work and they must have had an argument about it and he'd gone absolutely crazy i always find these kind of cases interesting though when somebody gets away with a, particularly when it's a really violent crime um and we don't know sometimes we, you know we can make our own assertions as to whether they are guilty or not we know they're not guilty in the eyes of the law but they may have done it i just find it really interesting that they're such a violent person do they ever then go on to commit other uh, violent acts and we've covered loads that are um, where somebody's been found not guilty but we think they are guilty and I just always wonder yeah is that still in them if if they genuinely did it is that urge in them to commit further brutal acts yeah completely agree and perhaps you know with her he just snapped and then tried to cover up his tracks because yeah. he was panicking but you do think like once that's happened once what if so and I also quite enjoy when it's a, an older case, like a, a historical case as well. I really enjoy that because we don't have much information and we kind of look at it with modern eyes. And to us now, he would have gone on and done something else. But actually, you know, back then, would he have carried on or would he have not? Yeah. Yeah, but even if like, even if like you say this person just snapped then they've clearly got a really short fuse and that they could be in that position in 10 20 years time and and do the same again Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah it's just one area that always fascinates me definitely our second case has been the basis of a film and is possibly the most well-known case of sleepwalking being used as a defense but this includes sleep driving as well so we head to 1987 and ontario is it Ontario or Ontario? It's Ontario. Ontario. Is it Ontario? Because I met I met a couple in America that were from Ontario, so I know Ontario. that for a fact. Yeah. Kenneth Parks, a happily married 23-year-old man with a baby daughter, had a good relationship with his in-laws. Sometimes even described as especially close, Kenneth and his wife's parents were just as close with, as you would be with your own parents. He was really, really lucky to have these in-laws that he loved, and they referred to him as their gentle giant. It was late at night on May the 22nd, 1987, and Kenneth had a secret he needed to share. He sat up making plans to finally come clean to his in-laws about his secret gambling addiction. So he'd had bouts of gambling in his past, but a windfall had led to his gambling habits escalating really severely. Soon he was in a lot of debt. He embezzled money at work to fund his habit, but was caught. So at this point in his life, he had been fired and he was unemployed. He depleted his family's savings and he'd borrowed from a finance company. And basically, it was a mess. He had confessed everything to his wife and they agreed they needed help. So Kenneth and his wife had made plans to reveal his financial ruin to his in-laws the following day. His wife went up to bed and Kenneth stayed downstairs, eventually falling asleep in front of Saturday Night Live on the telly. It's been suggested that the turmoil of what was going on for Kenneth and the stress of all of it had exacerbated his pre-existing sleep issues. So by all accounts, he was depressed, he was suffering from insomnia, and he also had a history of parasomnia behaviours, including sleepwalking and night terrors and something called enuresis. So I didn't really know how to pronounce enuresis. And it kind of basically, this caused like a bit of a, a perfect storm because it kind of all linked in together, especially with all of the stress that he'd been having. And you're not allowed to laugh at this. You're not allowed to laugh at this. But enuresis is when you wet the bed. 
Now, this oh. is a guy in his 20s, so he That's had really pre-existing then, conditions. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not really sure if that was purely in his childhood that he had this previous symptom or if he was also exacerbated it and he'd come back at this point. But basically, he was in a really bad way. This, honestly, to me, sounds like, I think you, you've summarised that perfectly, that, um, yeah, he's got this real turmoil, a hell of a lot of stress in his life and depression as a result and that uh, that can definitely uh manifest in all of these ways so suffering from insomnia um and and those sleepwalking behaviors and and yeah like bedwetting i'm not surprised actually so whilst he was asleep kenneth parks got up off the sofa where he'd fallen asleep he got into his car and he drove the 14 miles to his in-laws house so after breaking into the house, either using a key that he had for their home or breaking in through a window, reports kind of vary, Kenneth climbed the stairs and he attacked his mother-in-law with a heavy instrument and then a kitchen knife. Kenneth's in-laws lived with their teenage children who heard the attack and after he'd stabbed his wife's mother to death, his father-in-law woke and tried to stop him so Kenneth choked him into unconsciousness and then he roamed the house briefly afterwards. So the teenage children who lived in the house said that they heard him making strange noises and heard him wandering around before he just left. After he'd left the house and was driving home, Kenneth suddenly woke up. Can you even imagine waking up and you look down at yourself in your car, you're, you're just driving along and then you look down, you're covered in blood and you don't know what happened? I mean, and also, would you get some kind of flashback at that point? Uh, you might just get a one-frame image in your mind of uh, your mother-in-law in front of you, bleeding to death, or you holding a knife or something. Yeah, and maybe. the shock of that—I mean, it can't. I mean, th- this so doesn't compare, but it kind of reminds me of that feeling you get if you say you've been out on a um, like an absolute bender, and you wake up in the morning, and there's always that second of. Ah, and then you think, oh shit, I got wasted last night and I'm going to feel like shit all day. And it just kind of hits you and it's almost like a bit of a shock. I don't know if that's just me. Um, yeah, I think we've all been there. Yeah, I'm sure we have. And particularly if you've done something bad the night before as well. It just comes back to you and you feel awful. This would be that times a million. Exactly. So Kenneth didn't really have any memories, but he drove straight to the nearest police station. So obviously he knew something had happened and he presented himself to the officer on duty at the front desk covered in blood. He was also wounded himself and he literally said, I think I've killed some people because look at my hands. But then why would you say, I think, I don't know, I think I've killed some people because you've got blood on you. I don't know. Something else could have happened. Why would you immediately go to that if you had no recollection of it? I don't know, maybe, I don't, I don't know, actually, that's a good point. Well, when he was checked by the police, he had se- he'd had he suffered te- separated tendons in both hands. So actually, yeah, why would you not think like, oh, well, maybe I've been attacked or something? I don't know. So when he was questioned by the police, he couldn't recall any of his actions and he had no memory of committing any crimes. And in fact, in the seven subsequent interviews with physicians, psychologists, policemen and lawyers, Kenneth Parks maintained a really true version of what he could and couldn't remember so seemed to be really pretty set on what had and hadn't happened and that's that's probably really hard than having a very rehearsed version of events that did happen to to know where there were gaps and where you do recall things and where you don't that that is going some to maintain uh, a consistent account 
So when he was charged with first-degree murder and taken to the hospital for surgery, a doctor noted that he was a sad, remorseful and perplexed man, which I thought was a really interesting way of describing him. And it kind of sums up how you would be feeling, like completely confused, but also really remorseful. I'm really sad because these are the in-laws that you treated as if they were your own parents. Yeah. While in prison awaiting his trial, Parks underwent four months of scrupulous medical, psychiatric and cerebral testing and numerous neurologists conducted extensive sleep disorder tests which determined that he was indeed a sleepwalker. They also confirmed it was likely that he suffered from night terrors and it was noted that throughout his family tree there were ancestors who had suffered from similar problems. In psychiatric evaluations, he revealed that he had been a severe bedwetter until age 11, a deep sleeper who was hard to awaken, a chronic sleep talker and an occasional sleepwalker from early childhood. So all of that was in his past. And like we said earlier, it had then all come to the fore with the stress of having to confess about his gambling addiction and the problems that he faced. And all, all of that was documented, so it's it's not just some narrative that's been concocted, it's there, um, and it's it would have been documented a lot of that if he'd had severe sleep disorders as a child. Exactly. Ultimately, his legal team then formed the defence based on the theory that he had committed his crimes during non-insane automatism, so acting unconsciously, and Kenneth Parks' wife, Karen, was in the courtroom throughout his trial... And Mr. Woods, so Kenneth's father-in-law, did recover from his attack, but he testified oh, wow. that he never saw his assailant. So luckily he did recover. Wow, that's something. And his wife supporting him as well. Is amazing, isn't it? Because that's her yeah. mum that he's murdered. Oh, it's, it's, you just yeah. can't, you couldn't really get a worse um, uh, scenario for, for her to, to crazy, have lost her mum and then her, her own husband is responsible but doesn't recollect it. Yeah. So the jury, swayed by the evidence presented, found him not guilty of first-degree murder on the basis that he had no control over his actions. And it was a point that would prove critical in his successful defence was that fact that he had so badly lacerated both of his hands during the stabbing of his mother-in-law. You know, that's not somebody that's done that to... You wouldn't choose to do that to yourself. He's obviously acted unconsciously. Yeah. And then he avoided a life sentence because he wasn't guilty and he wasn't sentenced to a psychiatric hospital because he was not judged insane. So he was basically free to go. But he then did have to pay for some of the fines and stuff around the embezzlement and that side of things that absolutely Mm. had to be but he was found not guilty of the murder i i think that's the right outcome i really do and i think it's so sad because you do want to hold someone responsible when a woman has been murdered she has been murdered really there's no other way around it unless you could call it some kind of weird accident but you know she has died a really violent death and she may have looked her son-in-law in the eyes as he was doing this and thought what the hell is going on why is he doing it and that's how yeah, she died you absolutely would. and you can't hold anyone responsible and that's really sad but i feel it's the right outcome yeah So when someone's sleep deprived under stress and has a history of sleepwalking, they're more likely to experience parasomnia behaviours. And in Kenneth's case, it was clear that he had no ill will towards his in-laws. His personal circumstances and his sleep history then helped to explain why he was such a restless sleeper that night. And whilst Kenneth Parks wasn't found guilty of murder, like I said before, he did plead guilty to the fraud that had happened around the time of his mother-in-law's death. And he admitted to falsely billing his employer for $30,000 to cover his gambling debts and he put paid full restitution. He also got treatment for his sleep disorder as well. 
So it's a, a real happy ending, uh, apart from the fact that obviously um, the mother-in-law died, which is tragic. But for yeah. him personally, it was the best possible outcome. What I find fascinating with this case, I think that's such an interesting story. Um, I wonder if subconsciously, through all of this stress, through having the gambling debts and not wanting to come clean to his mother and father-in-law, but but actually needing the money, I wonder if subconsciously he was thinking, if I kill them, then we'll we'll inherit some of their estate and that will pay the debts off. Oh, and, that's interesting. And I'll never have to come clean to them. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. Mm. So I did mention at the beginning of that little case that Keller's story was even used in a film. So Alan Wolfe's film, In My Sleep explores the topic of sleepwalking in a fictional film inspired by Kenneth Park's case and some others and it's a psychological thriller where the story opens with a man awakening in the middle of a cemetery half naked with no idea how he got there. So if you're not feeling depressed enough I have the third of our cases now. So the final case we're going to go to Neath in South Wales and the summer of 2008. Brian and Christine Thomas had been married for almost 40 years at this point and the pair were described by those who knew them as devoted to one another. They were making plans for a Mediterranean cruise to celebrate their forthcoming wedding anniversary and they enjoyed nights out together, they liked watching rugby together, they walked together, cycled together, swam together, people said they were a loving couple couple, and the pair just, I say together a lot because they were, they were best friends and they loved going away in their camper van and just doing stuff as a pair. They were best friends as well as husband and wife and together they had raised two daughters and they had five grandchildren. Christine was well aware of Brian's sleep issues. Her husband, who was now 59, had been sleepwalking since he was a child. One night he'd left their house and he'd been for a swim in a nearby canal all whilst asleep. Dirty. I know, yeah. It wasn't unusual for Brian to wake up with cut feet, stones in the bed stuff like that. And Christine was, of course, so worried by these incidents that she actually began locking the house at night, but taking the keys to bed with her. So she knew at least Brian wouldn't sleepwalk his way out of the house and his antics were then going to be contained to their building. I think that, I honestly think that would be the only way to have a lock on on the bedroom door or certainly to lock and secure the house and to, to take the keys with you. And he also suffered from night terrors And Brian's sleepwalking was a bit of a family joke, so his wife would tell their daughters things like, oh, your father's been at it again, he filled the bath up and flooded the place. And they'd all laugh about how he'd cooked himself beans on toast in his sleep, things like that. But it wasn't all funny, it did affect their lives. But I think we do, we do, like you said, uh, I don't know, We we, it can be a bit lighthearted, sleepwalking, and people do funny things when they sleepwalk, and generally it is seen as a bit of a a kind of funny subject but yeah I mean as as these two cases so far have shown it's not and as this will go on to show it's not but um, I can sort of understand why they would have laughed about it a little bit. Oh they absolutely did and they did make a joke of it he'd get involved in the jokes it was a funny thing in the family but it led to the fact that Brian and Christine actually didn't sleep in the same bed they had separate bedrooms because he'd wake her up with his jaunts and his behaviours at night so even though it is amusing and he's cooking himself beans on toast and didn't burn the house down so it's okay to laugh about it he doesn't get to sleep in the same bed as his wife so they had separate bedrooms so that christine wasn't disturbed by brian but they described themselves as still emotionally close so brian had said each night we'd have a kiss and a cuddle first then i'd go to my room 
and the same in the morning. If she woke first, she'd come to my bed. If I woke first, I'd go to her bed. And we never got up without being in each other's bed first. How adorable That's is cute. that? That's cute. Yeah, very They're cute. They're so cute. Brian had seen his doctor in recent years because his behaviour had got worse and worse and he was prescribed antidepressants. So he would come off the drugs, which he believed made him impotent, every two months or so so that he could make love to his wife and then he'd go back onto them and continue taking them for a couple more months. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is heartbreaking that, that he's, well, that he's been prescribed them and maybe that was the right uh prescription for him I don't know but it's really sad that it was having that impact and that he then would come off them so that he could make love to her and um it just it breaks my heart that we then obviously you know this is will have all been reported and and we're talking about it and it's it's their private life isn't it it's just it's sad and I know we're adding to that by talking about it on here but we wouldn't ever cover anything cover anything that hadn't already been reported but it, things like this just break my heart when there's a tragic event that happens which I'm sure we're going to come on to um people's darkest secrets come out in public and I think that's also incredibly sad not as bad as what's actually going to happen or happened but I always find that really sad as well it is and I think the only thing that potentially will help you is that a lot of this came from Brian himself and his own admission so hopefully the fact that he was willing to discuss this and talk to media about it makes you feel a little bit better about the fact that yeah. we're talking about it. Because I thought but if it was right. like a defence, then that's different. You kind of, your back's mm. up against the wall. You've got no choice but to come out with all of this. But yeah, if he's been talking to the media about it, that's different. And it was a really unusual life, but it was their life. It, it worked for them. That is until July 2009 on one of their regular camper van trips. Following a cancer scare for Christine, the Thomases decided to head off in their camper van for an impromptu holiday in West Wales. Brian came off his antidepressants a week before they went away, and in the camper van, as was their norm, they did sleep in the same bed, unlike at home. On the last day of their holiday, they stopped the camper in a car park in the seaside village of Aberporth. The sky and water were a vivid blue, and they just basically said, let's not go home, let's stay one more night. So they had dinner at a pub, they walked their puppy on the beach, they watched a beautiful sunset, and then they went to bed. And it was just this wonderful end to a celebratory holiday. You know, good news about her health, having a lovely time, and it was beautiful. They got back to the camper van, Christine went to bed, and Brian watched the news until about half eleven, and then he got into bed. However, later on that night, they were awoken by what Brian described later as boy racers doing handbrake turns in the car park right where they were sleeping and it disturbed them so there were six or eight cars and they kept coming up to the camper spinning around doing handbrake turns and brian said to christine i'm gonna have to go say something but christine told him not to saying don't you know what they're like these days they might have a knife or god knows what so after i think the third time of these cars disturbing them they basically drove to the other end of the car park and Christine finally fell asleep, but Brian led awake a little bit longer and he was really worried. Maybe he hadn't set the intruder alarm. He didn't want to test it because it was really loud, but he kept on having these thoughts and he kept on thinking about these boy racers and what if they came up to the caravan. Eventually, he also fell asleep and Brian described, I always slept with her back towards me and my right arm under her neck and my left arm over her. But the following morning, Christine was dead. Brian woke up next to his wife's lifeless body and he immediately phoned 999. 
So what had really happened? Well, during the night, Brian's mind was filled with thoughts of the boy racers and worries that the camper van might not be secure. And he awoke in the night to see a man on top of his wife. And he yelled, you bastard, you managed to get in here, grabbed the man around the neck, pulled him off his wife. But a side effect of stopping his medication the way he did was to suffer from hallucinations. And it's obviously going to be an obvious thing for you guys knowing the theme of the episode. He was not fighting an intruder. It was his wife that he was choking and strangling. On the 999 call, Brian can be heard telling the operator, what have I done? I've been trying to wake her. I think I've killed my wife. Oh God, I thought someone had broken in. I was fighting with those boys, but it was Christine. I must have been dreaming or something. What have I done? What have I done? Can you send someone? So you can tell he's just absolutely distraught. Yeah, and completely in shock. And the police arrived expecting like a really easy an obvious case but they were really shocked they found distraught brian and they could hear nothing from friends about anything other than how in love the pair had been and he genuinely was upset he told the police i think i've strangled her i was fighting with this boy but there was no boy it was my wife and the police closed off the scene they wouldn't let brian go near his wife of course and they took him to Aberystwyth police station after pronouncing Christine dead at the scene. And when he was arrested for his wife's murder, he said, I wouldn't, I couldn't, and I didn't. But he continued to say, what have I done? What have I done to my wife? She's my world. And then he said, leave me out of here. I've got to be with her. And if she's dead, I'm going to die with her. So he was taken to a police cell and he says he, he can't really remember much around that time, only that he wanted to die. And he told a reporter that when they brought him sandwiches on a china plate, he hid the plate under a blanket, intending to smash it and slit his throat because there was no argument to him. He didn't want to be alive. He wanted to be with her. So the police surgeons ad- administered a sedative and sectioned him just for his own safety. So then they contacted the couple's daughters and obviously at first they believed that their parents had been attacked and then their dad was protecting the mum and he'd got himself arrested somehow. But then they were told, no, their dad might have actually killed their mum. And they were so sure there must have been a mistake saying he was so in love with Christine. They said he protected her so much, he did everything for her. He'd paint her toenails, dye her hair, do the shopping. But there wasn't a mistake. Whilst on remand, tests were carried out which confirmed that Brian Thomas suffered from night terrors and then his trial began in November 2009 at Swansea Crown Court. So Brian admitted to killing his wife but from the beginning of the trial, the prosecution declared that this was a unique case. The prosecution accepted that Brian Thomas should be found not guilty but initially called for a special verdict of not guilty due to insanity so he could be held in a secure psychiatric hospital Um, And the law dictates that this is a verdict that cannot be determined by anyone other than a jury. So it did have to go to court, even though he was Mm. admitting it. I still don't think that's fair, though. Um, Guilty by insanity. Well, maybe because I'm not what I don't I don't think it's fair that he should be admitted to a secure psychiatric hospital. I think you could find him guilty due to insanity, but it was a a brief, a very brief period of insanity. Um, I don't think he, he should be then remanded in a secure hospital so the jury were told that brian's sleep disorder meant he was in a state of automatism so his mind wasn't in control of his body and it was possible that he'd suffered particularly severe night terrors because he'd just come off his regular medication 
Within a week, you'll be pleased to know the trial collapsed because the CPS decided to offer no more evidence and the trial judge directed the jury to bring in a formal not guilty verdict. Brian was told he must never stop taking his medication again. He has to report to his doctor for regular blood tests and he was told basically never share a bed with anyone ever again. I know they can't enforce that, but he was, you know, that was what he was told he should do. The judge told Brian, you are a decent man and a devoted husband. I strongly suspect that you must well be feeling a sense of guilt. In the eyes of the law, you bear no responsibility. You are discharged. All of us who have been in court and have listened to the 999 call know exactly what your feelings were when you found that your wife was dead. And members of the Thomas family cheered when that verdict was returned. So that he, again, he's had the full support of his entire family. Yeah. Speaking outside of the court... Brian Thomas's brother said, he's a gentleman and always has been. He's a good man. Christine and Brian loved each other. But it wasn't all happiness. For Brian, life just wasn't worth living anymore. Christmas came and went, almost unnoticed, without the usual celebrations. On the 4th of January, the day that should have been Brian and Christine's 40th wedding anniversary, Brian took the 40 roses, the bottle of champagne and the anniversary card that he'd arranged to give to Christine on the cruise and he drove back to Aberporth. He also took a bottle of pills and he fully intended not to come back. He tied the roses in a card to a fence and he asked a bloke walking past if he'd remove the flowers when they died because he didn't want the place to look untidy. And honestly, this is such a, you know, when things just happen at the right moment because the guy that had been walking past said, oh, it was you in the camper, wasn't it? I am so sorry. We saw that you that night walking along the beach. You were such a beautiful couple. And those words from this complete stranger saved Brian's life because he realised he needed to think about his daughters. They'd already lost their mum. I mean, yeah, I'm so pleased that that man, he has completely saved Brian's life, hasn't he here? And you're so right, their daughters would have lost their mum in that those awful circumstances and then their dad so soon afterwards and that would have left them completely bereft. So Brian had a dream that his wife had forgiven him and his daughter said that to the press there's nothing to forgive him for because we know how close they were and his daughter said it's never entered my head it was anything but an accidental tragedy. I suppose when you read something like this it sounds unreal and people must think oh yeah likely story but unless you're in the family you just don't understand. There's no punishment the court could have given my father that's a patch on how he punishes himself and that's exactly how it is for Brian so although he walked free from court he'll never be free from what he's done and he said that the thought of looking down at her is his life sentence that memory um so Christine's grave has a black granite headstone with a gold leaf inscription that reads in loving memory of Christine Thomas devoted wife of Brian loving mother and grandmother who passed away on July 26 2008 age 57 forgive me my love until we meet again so there we go what a tragic end for this week's episode and I'm sorry it was so sad but I think that that listening. one that's particularly sad because they were such a loving couple. Not only has he lost his wife, which would have been absolutely heartbreaking for him, it's the fact that he was responsible for it, even though he kind of wasn't. Um, and he, he's going to have to live with with that loss, but also that guilt. Um, yeah, that's incredibly sad, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible. And it made me so sad when I was reading it and researching it. And then when I wrote it as well, and oh, now presenting it as well, it just breaks your heart. Mm, horrible. Very interesting, all three cases. Uh, we've never covered that subject before. I think later on in, in this season, I might go back to it because I, I know of a couple of cases over the last few years. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few that we could could look at, so please do. 
I will do. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. Thanks for listening, everybody. And sorry it was such a tragic, sad story. Yeah, thanks, Bethan. Yeah, it's uh, we're recording this on Blue Monday, which is the most depressing day of the year. So um, hopefully that's uh, that's not really affected you. Um, and we'll be back next week. Maybe I'll, I'll have something a bit more lighthearted again, but possibly not. Uh, actually, no, I know I've not because I know what I'm covering and it's uh, horrendous. So sorry, Yay. guys. Yeah. Hey, there we go. Bye. Bye.